Welcome back to the Original Gangsters Podcast. I'm Jimmy Bucciolato, here with my partner in crime and co-conspirator, Mr. Scott M. Bernstein. Hello. Hey now, Jimmy. And uh, welcome everyone back. We're happy to do another episode here for you. Please follow us on social media and, and, and subscribe to our podcast. Um, just us, though. Yeah, just the two of us. and Bernie um, and the Booch. <laughs> that's right. We're like a uh, sports radio team. Yeah. and the boo. Or like de- like a 70s detective. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like a detective show on ABC. And, uh, After we, Barney Miller. That's right. We've <laughs> Barnaby Jones, uh, Starsky and Hutch. But um, we've done some episodes recently about Detroit and the Jackaloni brothers, and we're getting a lot of love on social media, so we appreciate that. And people saying, keep, keep those episodes coming, more topics related to Detroit Cosa Nostra. So that's what we're going to do today, talk about the – the Jackaloni brothers, but also, you know, even more micro than that about a, a crew in Saginaw. But the bigger news, I think, that we'll let Bernie open it here in a moment is uh, some Hoffa-related news. And so it's, that's it's pretty bre- exciting. And it's breaking news. Uh, you know, there's so much to unpack when you're talking about the Jimmy Hoffa case. And honestly, it, you know, there's a lot of times over the years where it looks like there's some big break in the case. And then it 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 fizzles. Um, but, uh, I'm really excited about this new lead that I've uncovered. Um, and it's something that I've been uh, tracking down for the last, let's say year, year and a half. And I've just been able to uh, flesh out another layer of, of this aspect of the story, which, um, I've always, prided myself on being able that my contribution to the, you know, the pantheon of Hoffa research and, and Hoffa investigation. I've always prided myself as, you know, I'm trying to take people to where he was killed. Um, the kill house, if you will. Yeah. Uh, I've never, you know, uh, trumpeted, uh, my ability to go take you to a body or I've never told you, or I know for sure where, where he was uh, laid to rest. Um, it's nothing that I, I really, there, there's, there's, there's so, the the waters are so muddy when it comes to where the body is, or if there is even a body to be found. It's so, uh, so needle in a haystack that I I really wasn't even compelled to go there. And that's where everyone goes. They want to, they want the, they want the, 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 uh, pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, if you will. But I've always kind of. We said at the beginning, or Jimmy said, you know, uh, micro as opposed to macro. Um, I've tried to really zero in on where they took him that afternoon, July 30th, 1975, and where they murdered him. Um, My research took me first um, to a theory that I've espoused quite a bit over the last 15 years, and I'm um, not... Strain from that theory, I'm just going where the facts lead me, but the first theory uh, took us to the Carlo Licata house, um, which sits at uh, around the crossroads of Long Lake Road and Telegraph. Hoffa disappeared um, the afternoon of July 30th, 1975 from 15 Mile and uh, Telegraph, or Maple and Telegraph. Long Lake is 17 miles, so it's a, a two-mile trip uh in a car going north um from where hoffa was was last seen uh, at the rest uh, at a restaurant parking lot the red fox uh, he was supposed to go meet uh, that afternoon uh, tony jackaloni 
Detroit Mob Street Boss, Tony Provenzano, uh, the Genovese crime family's New Jersey capo regime, and the the kind of the the name that gets lost in the shuffle is uh, Leonard Little Lenny Schultz, who was Tony Giacalone's right hand, uh, his guy that uh, did all of his uh, labor racketeering for him and, and all of his troubleshooting in the in the labor unions, owned his his headquarters, the Southfield Athletic Club, and Lenny Schultz was supposed to be at that meeting. Uh, so at first, my research took me to the Lakata house. Uh, Carl Lakata was a mob prince, mafia prince from uh, Los Angeles that married into the Detroit crime family in the 50s and transferred uh, here out to Michigan, uh, married into the Toko family. And uh, his brother-in-law uh, at the time of the Hoffa disappearance was Giacomo Blackjack Toko, who had in 1975, was the acting boss of the Detroit Mafia. Um, Hoffa had met the Giacalone brothers at Lakata's house uh, at least a dozen uh, times in the previous three or four years. Lakata suspiciously ended up dead at that house on the six-year anniversary um, of of the Hoffa disappearance. Wait a minute. So just I'm sorry to interrupt, but we know that Hoffa would attend sit-downs at that house. Right, so at the Lakata house. Yeah, okay. Because I think that's really important to the... Yes. So, why Why this is a conceivable... Right, so the Lakata theory, uh, the Lakata house at the time was known as the quote-unquote house on the hill. It sat uh, on a hill um, right off of Long Lake Road um, uh, across from an elementary school, um, but had a very secluded uh, backyard and uh, kind of a roundabout to where the um, garage was. Uh, it was a, a location that Hoffa was familiar with because, especially at that time, most of Detroit mob activity was based on the east side of Detroit. Um, whenever there was business to be done on the west side, they needed a, a like a, a sit-down um, location, a place where they would feel safe having uh, top-level conversations uh, on the west side. Tony Giacalone's headquarters was at like 11 and Evergreen, um, this was on 17 miles, so it's about a six-mile drive north for, for Jack Ohlone. Jimmy Hoffa would be coming from Bloomfield Hills or, or where his cottage was, his summer cottage in Lake Orion. So uh, it, was, it was kind of a, a meet-in-the-middle type situation. You know what's interesting to me also? I don't want to get lost in the weeds here, but if you think about Lakata's part of the Toko faction that at least I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, but in your view, and also some of the FBI people we've talked to, like, during those sit-downs, Lakata himself probably wasn't even really part of those conversations. No, they were just using, they were using his house as a meeting right, place. Right, he wasn't a lot of times significant they told enough. Lost. Right, that's what I mean. It's yeah. sort of interesting, yes. right? Well, it was the, you know, it wasn't just Carl Lakata's house. It was Josephine Babe yeah. Toko's house. They right. called her Babe. Uh, her real name was Josephine. But it was Babe Toko's house, which was Jack Toko and Tony Toko's sister. Yeah. So, you know, they felt comfortable going over to their sister's house to hold uh, sit-downs or to have their lieutenants go to their sister's yeah. house to, to hold sit-downs. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm starting to bury the lead here, and I apologize. So that was the theory that's, that I've been on for, let's say, 15 years. In the last year or so, I've been put on to another theory to where the hit house uh, is or was. And it's a theory that, frankly, uh, makes sense. And it's a theory that's directly tied to the most recent national Hoffa news, 
which is the FBI has acquired a search warrant uh, to dig up a piece of property in New Jersey, and it looks like uh, there will be a a Hoffa dig um, coming up. Uh, it could be, I've heard, anywhere from the next couple weeks to the next couple months, uh, and they'll be digging on a piece of property that was tied to Tony Provenzano's crew. Uh, Provenzano was the New Jersey copper regime who was in a feud with Hoffa, and Hoffa needed to uh, mend fences with Provenzano in order to get back into the Teamsters Union, back, uh, sorry, get, get win the presidency again. And uh, there's a, it was a landfill owned by one of uh, Provenzano's soldiers, a guy by the name of Philip Moscato, brother Moscato. And uh, there's been some activity at, at that uh former site of that landfill, uh, Fox News. Um, the Fox News Channel has, has done uh, quite a bit of uh, sniffing around there the last couple of years. You know, full disclosure, I was uh, involved in, in some of that uh, from a, a consult consultancy for the Fox News Channel out of New York. Um, and the FBI is piggybacking off of that, and they're about to go dig it up. Now, if that theory proves true, uh, the hit house has been identified as Lenny Schultz's house, not Carlo Licata's house. That Hoffa was taken, instead of going uh, about a five-minute car ride north, he would have gone uh, a five-minute car ride west to Lenny Schultz's house um, at 13 Mile and Franklin Road uh, on a street called McKinney. And it's a dead-end street. Um, that uh, dead ends into a cul-de-sac. Lenny's house was the kind of the, the, the end of the block and had a, had a big backyard. Um, and uh, Lenny Schultz was very close to Hoffa, was very close to Jackaloni, knew Provenzano. Uh, I think Hoffa would have felt comfortable going to Lenny's house for a meeting. Uh, I don't know uh, for sure, but I would guess that Hoffa had been to Schultz's house quite a bit. Um, they had worked together for decades. Uh, Schultz had been involved in labor union affairs dating back to the 40s, uh, 50s, and uh, had helped groom and cultivate uh, the Detroit mob's relationship with, with Hoffa and acted as a go-between uh, with the Jackalones. And, uh, so Dan, Dan Moldea believes this that. Is what, this is Dan Moldea's theory. That I help crack. I was going to say, but that's from you, though. Isn't yeah. the house, not yes. not the burial in right. Jersey, but the, the kill house is actually from you. My research. And then he, he signed he yeah. so someone, signed off. Someone came to me who, who at one point uh, had used to been a, had, had been a bodyguard and driver for Lenny Schultz. Uh, a guy that was a, uh, a collector for the Jackaloni brothers uh, in the Jewish community. Um, a guy that's now... Uh, pushing 80 and uh he came to me and and i believe it was uh 20 2020 so i think it was a year ago about a year ago and uh, that uh, i think it was october maybe of, of 2020 and um i knew this guy um he had never really confided to me before but uh i'd been introduced to him on a number of occasions uh i knew that he had connections to, to the Jackaloni brothers and, and, and Lenny. And uh, he told me that uh, 
There was one point in the uh, mid-90s, early 90s, right after Lenny had got out of prison for his last uh, stint behind bars, which he did for a cocaine bust, uh, cocaine uh, distribution bust, um, when he was in the 70s. <laughs> That's what I was talking it, it, it shows you, though, in the 1980s how that was. Oh, yeah. That was where the money was. It was a beating frenzy <laughs> right. from every you know gangster worth uh, their salt was, was trying to jump into the coke, coke game because there was so much uh, return for your buck. Uh, and that he told this source of mine that uh, kind of matter-of-factly, uh, uh, matter-of-factly as they were driving past his old, his old house at that point, I don't think he was living in that house, um, that they had taken off of there that day, uh, had left the Red Fox, and that uh, the Jackalones had, had taken Hoffa to Lenny Schultz's house and had killed him there and then had turned his body over to Roland McMaster, who... Uh, not a, a made member of the Italian Mafia, but uh, a very notorious Teamsters Union goon and strong arm that at one point was Hoffa's main muscle, uh, you know, with you know, in terms of boots on the ground, uh, and then hitched his trailer to the mob that was opposing Hoffa at that point in Hoffa's uh, quest to reclaim the team. He was sort of the field general in the war against Hoffa, yeah, right, right? Wouldn't you say? So uh, Dan Maldea's theory has always included Roland McMaster, that McMaster, uh, through Gateway Transportation, which he had a silent ownership uh, role in, and I believe his brother-in-law uh, owned, uh, that they took a Gateway Transportation truck, uh, took Lenny Schultz's body, or sorry, took Jimmy Hoffa's body from Lenny Schultz's house and uh, put him in a Gateway Transportation truck and uh, sent him down to New Jersey, where they buried him in the uh, PJP landfill. Now, I've written about Schultz's house possibly being the kill house over the last year, so that's not really the breaking news. Um, but the breaking news, I guess we'll see if it's breaking news, but the potential breaking news here is that when I went to Lenny Schultz's old house, which is... Uh, at 31079 McKinney. Um, and uh, I, I talked to the people that own the house now. And uh, they informed me, and I had been informed by some people in the past that there was always suspicious going-ons in, in Lenny's backyard. Um, and that there is a, like a, 20 foot by 20 foot uh, piece of concrete or uh, a patch of concrete that's uh, out of place that looks clearly man-made uh, that they they disturbed the the earth in the in the backyard of Lenny's house to bury something. Um, I don't sense it's a body, but I have an inkling that there could be a murder weapon down there. Um, and I think if you find a murder weapon that's tied to Hoffa, potentially, you could also find a murder weapon that's tied to the Harvey Leach murder, which took place, yeah. uh, about 14 months or 15 months before Hoffa's murder. And the FBI, while 
they're not commenting on on Lenny Schultz and Lenny Schultz's uh, possible property being used as as a, a kill location for Hoffa, but the federal government has always been very transparent with their belief that Lenny Schultz's house was used to execute Harvey Leach in March of 1974. Um, so the, 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 the school of thought would be if the Detroit mob felt comfortable enough using Lenny Schultz's house to kill someone in 1974, they would feel just as comfortable in, in killing someone in, in 1975 there. And in both cases, Lenny Schultz helped broker a meeting with Tony Jacqueline. Um In uh, 74, Harvey Leach was a burgeoning furniture tycoon um, and uh, had taken out a loan by the Jacqueloneys to expand his furniture business. And that loan turned into a takeover, hostile takeover, a bust out. And uh, he was being forced to sell the business. And I think he was okay with that. He just kind of chalked it up to doing business with the mob. But then he started to buck over some of the particulars of the sales contract. Um, so he's like, okay, I'll sell you the business, but you got to give me a fair deal. Uh, he was causing issues with the, with the contract, and they just, at least the, the belief of, the, of law enforcement, they just decided to kill him. Um, well, was, he, he was sort of a... Um... I don't want to say, I don't know if local lady. celebrity is the right word, but he wasn't he doing the commercial? I mean, people knew well, who he, he was, so right? He, so it was Robinson Furniture. It's like a personality, I Robinson say, right? Furniture. Uh, yeah. Uh, you have an uncle in the furniture business. Yeah, right. Um, I remember those commercials. Sure, yeah. Like so do I, yeah. So he bought Robinson Furniture. He turned it into Joshua Door, which was a trendier, hipper version of Robinson Furniture. Mm -hmm. And it became the place in the uh, early 70s that, uh, you know, all the, I mean, I guess they weren't calling them yuppies then, but all, all of the young urban professionals of the seventies were outfitting their homes with Joshua door furniture. Yeah. And I, I bring that up only because when he, when his, when he disappeared and they found him dead, I mean, that was big news. I mean, it was, it was a huge, it was a big deal. And they found him in the trunk of his car on his wedding day. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, he's supposed to be getting married at uh, one o'clock that afternoon. They found him in, in his car at 13 mile in Southfield, um, Southfield road and 13 mile in the parking lot of the, uh, I believe it's called the, Congress building, still there, um, and uh, yeah, they found him in the trunk of his car, uh, stabbed, shot to death, and uh, his throat was slit. I believe there might have been a um, other body parts uh, cut off. There were rumors that uh, he was having an affair with one of Billy Jackaloni's girlfriends, which also added to uh, that would be the symbolism, the short, the short leash that he was on. Yeah, uh, castration. Yeah. He uh, and Billy had just come out of prison like a month or two before that, which also lead, led people to believe that that uh, Billy had served, I think, a three or four year sentence and uh, was was not in Detroit. Um, and he comes back, uh, I think, in the in the winter of 74. And uh, there were these rumors that that Leach had been sleeping with one of Billy's, not his wife, but one of Billy's Go girlfriends uh, in those couple of years that he was gone. Uh, so it probably didn't help his case when, uh, uh, and then he was doing a lot. Of, I, I, I believe I don't have, uh, I don't have this, I don't have this in stone, but my research led me to believe that, and he, I know he's being investigated for this, that Leach was also possibly helping Schultz and the Jackalones launder money through channels in Canada. 
because Leach had a lot of uh, business going on in Toronto. And I know there was uh, investigations into that. So that could have been another reason they wanted to kill Leach to, you know, keep his mouth shut. Um, so, and uh, furthermore, in the years since both of those murders, there's been at least one or two tips that have come into the FBI in, I believe, in the 2000s, maybe in the early 90s, maybe in the late 90s, but definitely at some point in the last 20 years, uh, that the same weapon that killed Hoffa was also used to kill Leach. I know that was a long. Yeah, well, I, <laughs> I, no, I mean, I rambled. That. I guess I guess the one thing to think about here is weighing the Lakata house versus the Schultz house. And these both seem plausible to me. And. Let me be careful here. So the Lakata house, I've always been, um, believe that, that that's the house because of its proximity, but also because the sources in federal law enforcement, um, that, that's the house that they believe, at least the ones I've talked to. And some of them have been on this show, right? Uh, you can go listen to our episodes with Keith Corbett and the, Mike the, the, Cerrone. The Detroit Mafia is so saturated in messages in their murders and not messages to the general public messages right. to other people in the Detroit underworld. Then unless you know what to look at, it's innocuous to you. But Lakata didn't just end up dead on the six year anniversary. Lakata ended up dead almost to the minute. Hoffa was murdered at about three o'clock or somewhere between two forty-five and three o'clock, um, July 3rd, 1975. And Lakata depending on who you ask, either shot himself or was shot at about 3 o'clock at that same location, July 30th, 1981. I just don't think it's a coincidence. Yeah. I've I've always viewed that as a separate thing, though. Like, that that to me doesn't necessarily mean anything about Hoffa, the the Cotta house being the kill house, does it? That they killed him on the, the six-year anniversary almost to the minute? To me, it does. To me, it says that, like, this guy, even though he was our brother-in-law, I'm, I'm talking from a Jack and Tony Toko perspective, you know, even though this guy was our brother-in-law, he got too big for his britches, he was uh, mistreating our, our sister, and yeah. according to some people, trying to leverage uh, his knowledge of Hoffa to his advantage, saying something along the lines of like, you can't do anything to me because right. I, I know see. about this. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I, I know so many people that I shouldn't say so many. I know uh, a handful of people that were interacting with Carl Licata in the weeks and months leading up to uh, his death. And, and nobody said that he was uh, suicidal or someone that looked like he was un- unhappy or yeah. hanging by a thread. Or- yeah, let me let me walk that back now because after what you're just saying now 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 I'm I'm it makes it actually makes total sense because if it were at Lenny's Schultz's house, Lakato would have nothing to nothing yeah. wouldn't even be wouldn't know wouldn't be a driver would be nothing. Yeah, right. So that the if 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 the suicide possible murder. Well, let me also say, if if that's true, then then it would make sense because the only way he would know have any inside information of that if it was at his house. Well, and from uh, right, is that what yes, you say? Yes, and I think uh, I shouldn't say I think I know from discussing this theory with uh, former members of the federal task force, both prosecutors and FBI agents, that 
the Lakata theory didn't really start to take any uh, get any traction until he popped up dead. Yeah. Um, I think they looked into the possibility that he had been taken there uh, because it was so close. Right. But I don't think there was a, a, a big push by federal law enforcement to zero in on the Lakata house until Lakata showed up dead on that six-year anniversary. And even even then, I asked Mike a few weeks ago, did you guys investigate that? And he was like, no. Like, <laughs> it, well, I, so, I FOIA'd it. You know, the Bloomfield Hills Police Department had like, a, you know, a three-page, yeah. you know, nothing file on it. Right. It was closed really quickly. Like, they, they went to the house and they just, they, they decided right. it was a suicide without really looking into it. The fact that, you know, the gun was like, 15 feet from the body and it was wiped clean of uh, any fingerprints. You're going to have to believe that the guy shot himself, uh, got to a, um, a, uh, a dresser that was, uh, you know, not just a foot or two away from the bed, uh, took the gun, put it on the dresser and then went back to the bed and lied down and died. So, uh, and I also wanted to say that I've been told by, dare I say, two dozen people, both guys on the street and guys uh, um, in law enforcement, that this is where it took place, uh, the Lakata house. You know, guy, you know, I've never, other than this one source who told me this last year, I have not heard anyone point the finger at Lenny Schultz's house. And let me also tell you, this this one source is not a made member of the mafia. He was an associate. Um, he really wouldn't have been in a position to know anything if it, if if it didn't have if it if according to him it hadn't have come from Lenny Schultz. Yeah, does he show up in the FBI files at all? His name? No. No, okay. I'm, I'm, oh, oh, no. I, I should say F, I should say the Hoffa, right, not, the Hoffix. Yes, not, I've not, seen his name in FBI in, files in general, to right. the Jacaloni brothers sure. uh, from the 80s, uh, sure, the sure. 80s as being a collector for them. But not the Hoffix but memo. related to Hoff. Okay, so why didn't they... And I've heard, of, I've heard of from some really, really good street sources that Lakata's house was used. Yes, right, right. So, and, but, like, I've heard specifics. Like, one person told me it wasn't a gun. Well, they strangled. They, they, they garroted him. Yeah. At Lakata's. If the feds were so sure of this, they couldn't generate any evidence to go to a judge and try to examine the house? I mean, they went to that fucking house okay. in, West, in northwest Detroit. All right, so we got to put it in context here. 1981, there was no such thing as DNA. Right. Or at least we didn't know anything about DNA. Yeah, yeah. So in 81, giving the FBI the benefit of the doubt, I mean, they might say to themselves, and I know there was uh, quite a bit of renovations done uh, to that house after Lakata died. Um, they they moved the garage from one side of the house to the other. There was a horse stable in the back uh, of the property that they got rid of. Um, giving them the benefit of the doubt, they might have said, like, yeah, we're six years too late on this. Like, even if we get a search warrant to get in there, all the evidence is gone or tainted. Now, could now to your point, could they have you know once the DNA evidence becomes something, and, right? And, and is he being used in investigations? Could they have gone back through their Hoffa research or Hoffa investigation and decided to go back to houses like that and 
I don't know. What do the because the guys that I've talked to are the old school guys who are there in real time. But what is the current FBI's Detroit office? You talk to those guys more than I do. What? What? Not really. Are they impressed with the Lakatas? So, so uh, and this might be way too inside baseball, but you know, my my relationships with law enforcement, um, and I'll, I'll definitely say that the FBI doesn't like the narrative that. They talked to Scott Bernstein. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, and I know there there have been uh, meetings held at at the McNamara Building in downtown Detroit, where members of federal government uh, OC investigations have been called in and, and told to whatever you do, do not be passing information to Scott Bernstein because <laughs> they see things in print and sometimes it makes them look bad. And I yeah, I, I get it. Sure. Um, so. I will say that my current relationship with the with the 2001 FBI OC unit is as thin as it's been in my 15 years of doing this. A lot of the guys. 2001. Why do you say? I said 2021. I thought it did. Oh, I apologize. Okay. 2021. <laughs> all right. All right. And, to, and right now. I was just confused. At right. the second. I got you. Um, a lot of the guys that I built trust with. Um, whether it be on the record, off the record stuff, uh, are no longer in the office. Um, FBI agent Mark Silsky is the head of the OC unit right now. I know Mark. Um, I have a lot of respect for Mark. He is a student of the game, if you will. Um, but I, I, I would not say that I have a, He's not a source of mine. And I would love him to be a source of mine. So you don't know. You, you, it's difficult to gauge right what he now, thinks yeah, of this yeah, yeah, theory. Yeah. But I know he's at the forefront of it because I know Moldea is talking to Silsky. The point person for Moldea is now Silsky. But that's for the Lenny. That's for the, an alternative theory, the Lenny Schultz. No, it's not even. It has nothing to do with either house. It has to do with just the, in general. The dig, the dig. I got you. The Jersey. Okay. Dig. So just in general. Dan's in contact with. Dan doesn't. Doesn't care about where he was killed, honestly. Sure. Dan just wants to find the body. Right. So Dan's uh, been campaigning for them to dig uh, at that former site of the PJP landfill for the last two years. And now I think he's got to the point where they are either close to digging or will dig soon. And I know that Mark Silsky's running point. And it doesn't surprise me because I know Mark Silsky's the the guy that is running uh, all organized crime investigations. For Detroit. See, there's so much, there's, there's, there's so many, it's just confusing because it's possible that there are people within the FBI that would not want to, would want to divert attention from the Lenny Schultz house. Okay. Right. So. And we can, uh, we can talk about that. I mean, Lenny yeah. Schultz was a confidential informant. It came out in, uh, he brought it out. Yeah. Lenny Schultz himself brought it out. Yeah. Uh, as a defense to, uh, in his drug case. Um, I think we've talked about it on here before, but maybe we haven't. At first, it shocked me, um, especially that he would offer that information uh, in public, uh, in a public forum like that. But the more I thought about it, the more I talked to people, I, I think he got permission, uh, or in some ways might have even been puppeted yeah. by the Jackalones in his, in his, uh, in his inform. In his, in, in his status as an informant, yeah. that he was there to provide disinformation um, or give bits and pieces of, of truths or 
give up information on the jackal and his enemies. Yeah. Um, but to what you just said, it makes you wonder, you know, if it's public record that, that Schultz is an informant and it somehow turns out that the Schultz house was involved in any way, shape, or form right. in the Hoffa murder, then there's a lot of egg on the face of the FBI. You had an informant who was involved in it, and you were he was an open informant for literally 50 years. He was open, I think it came out in court files in 1985 that he'd been open back in, like, 1953. When I say open, I mean they open a file on you as a confidential informant. Yeah, right. So he was informing for 40 at least 40 years. So if we think about the timeline, not I think it not to digress too much here, but 53. So I don't know if it was he, 53. It was somewhere in the well, 50, what, what 50, not, in the mid 50s. So at that point, he Jack Lonnie's probably don't even know at that point. You like he, I think he I think he was working with uh, he, was he Tony, working with them that early at that point. Okay. But because they, they were I mean, but they were just soldiers in the early 50s, weren't they? Uh on their way to being capos. I mean, Tony Jack obviously was already like had Josie. He was already yeah. Josie's protege, but I, I'm just saying, just in terms of official status. Oh, no, you're right. The timeline were... that the timeline that that I just laid out, you know, I guess begs some questions about yeah the permission factor. That's what that's what I mean. Like, it, it, I wonder if that like evolved and like you know, <laughs> and then so, and then sometimes there are are uh, machinations at play in in the F, in the relationships between FBI. Or DEA, ATF, and informants, where an informant will be active for five years, ten years, and then he'll go dark, right? Uh, for five, ten years, yeah, and then he'll be reactivated. Was that with Scarpa? Yeah, he goes dark Scar- for Scarpa. Uh, went, they closed him down for five years, right? They okay. closed. They closed Greg Scarpa, who was one of the most <laughs> just you know, one of the most disturbing cases of the FBI working with with mobsters, yeah, in in, in an information exchange. Um, yeah, Greg the Grim Reaper, Scarpa, Scarpa from the Colombo crime family. Uh, they closed him down from seventy-five to eighty. Yeah, that's up there with Bulger in terms of embarrassing. Yeah. I, I think it doesn't get the same. Nineteen seventy-five to nineteen. It doesn't get the same media coverage because I, maybe just because Scarpa wasn't a boss and Bulger was had this whole mythology around him. But it, it's really the same sort of scandal, really. Yeah, it is, um, and it, I think it dates back further. Yeah, because uh, Scarpa was was doing work uh, <laughs> back in the early '60s, and he was doing stuff that had nothing to do with the mafia. Right. They were using him, you know, for like black ops, like CIA shit. Yeah. Um. So, but if the FBI has their reasons to divert attention from the from the Schultz house, but if they're cooperating with this dig, then there's some inconsistency there, right? Because if they do find Hoffa's body, which I'll say on the record, I don't think they will, and I'll be the first to come on our podcast and no, say I, I was wrong. I, 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 want, I, I don't I'm, think I'm, they will, but I'm rooting so hard for Dan Maldea. Oh yeah, he, he's he de- a good dude. He, he deserves this. I just don't. I he just don't think to they be will. The one that that cracks the case. I just have a difficult time believing that they would uh, transport a body across. No, the see that 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 I I don't. That's that's the big thing. But so. But but. What did I tell you before? One of my one of my wild card theories is that there is a body there, and it's not. Oh off, right, right. That I off. believe. That I would believe. Yeah. That the Jackaloni sent another body down there and told Provenzano and told Moscato that it was Hoffa. Yeah, yeah. That that 
that seems like uh, plausible, the kind of subterfuge. Yeah. Um, but if they, if they, or if they, so if they, if they go along with the dig and let's say they find Hoffa's body, then, then you connect the dots back to, okay, the murder house was Lenny Schultz. Then they might go dig up the backyard of Schultz's house and, and try to find out what's underneath that patch of concrete. Right. But then also it's going to come out that he was an FBI informant. What's well, already come out. No, I mean, I mean, but it'll be, yeah, not many people outside right, of right, the, <laughs> right. people that study yes. this know that. Yes. Um, so. Yes. Uh, it wouldn't, the optics on it might not the be optics, great. right, right. So did. I do know. I do know. Unless, unless they know that there's, they're not going to find a body, so that it doesn't matter. <laughs> and this is all just for uh, bread and bread and circus or whatever. What's the saying? You know, the yeah. term of just have like this sort of optics and yeah. spectacle of it. Uh, I, I know for a fact that they pressed him for Hoffa information. I mean, I talked to the to the people that were were uh, handling him. Uh, what, and I know that there were lengthy debriefing sessions and lengthy interrogation sessions where the U.S. attorney and the FBI agents that were handling Schultz were constantly grilling him for Hoffa. Hmm. That, so I, I I know that firsthand from interviews I did with uh, prosecutors and FBI agents. Well, we know also from the from and this is why it gets so confusing. It's like a labyrinth. We know from the Bulger and Scarpa cases that not every not all, everyone's sailing in the same direction. Right. Right? There's within the federal bureaucracy, some people know things, some people and, don't. And you know? <laughs> and, and within the, the federal law enforcement structure and, and the way they deal with informants, the only people that know who the actual informant is, yeah. is the handler, the, the agent that is officially in charge of handling him and meeting with him and, and right. writing up all the documents tied to that confidential informant, who's only known as a number right. to the rest of the office. Yeah. And then the, uh, the, the ASAC, the guy that's in charge of the office, would know who the informant is. So the U.S. attorney would totally go after that dude. They, so, they're not, they're not yeah, part of that. Right. So there would be, you know, a number of people that would be, you know, the, the good guys fighting the good fight. They don't even realize that one of the guys they're going after is actually helping the good guys. And then, like with Scarpa and Bulger, then then the the FBI handler has to do the dirty work of running interference yeah. to protect their. Well, and then then you get caught doing something that isn't isn't sanctioned by the government, right? Uh, which is was Lenny Schultz's coke case in the '80s, and he goes in front of, he goes to court and he says, "Well, guys." This isn't what you think it is. This is actually this was me doing work on behalf of the FBI, trying to ensnare all these coke dealers down in Florida, trying to move blow into Detroit. And then the FBI agents actually had to get up on the stand and say, actually, that's not true. He never co-signed any of this, and he was doing this all on his own. It, it's really fascinating because it reminds you of the the what the the guys in Chicago said a few years ago. That we were do that yes we were moving blow but it was all under the sanction of the of the DEA yeah right these were guys from El Chop from uh, the uh, Sinaloa right. cartel which of course again the DEA is saying it's that's ludicrous but um, so th- so this isn't the first time we've heard we've heard this kind of argument by someone you know yeah a defendant saying you know hey I, they knew they knew we were doing this but see I also see part of the Schultz theory as separate from what's going on down in uh, New Jersey. I think you could have a situation where they killed him at Lakata's house, but they buried the weapon in the backyard at Schultz's house. Yes. And incinerated the body at right. a third at, location. At Central Sanitation in Hamtramck. 
I think I think that's very plausible. That yeah, that could be. So I think I might have uncovered something, uh, a new layer of the Hoffa mystery that is independent, although it might look yeah uh, directly connected to the theory that he went down to New, or that they took him down to New Jersey to bury him in in the Moscato landfill. Uh, I think there's a chance that 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 ends up not that 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 theory ends up not coming to fruition. And we could still find something in Lenny's backyard. I, I don't think that there's no, – I think there's something buried there, whether it's a, a murder weapon tied to Hoffa or Leach or and something so, else of value in, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, filling in pieces to the, the mafia and, and, that could and be the Jackalonies. Ki- that and, could be the kill house too. Right. Yeah. And, and he would have been incinerated. Because I think I know, like you mentioned, right? Uh, exactly. Exactly. Sorry. So we could have yeah. been the kill house and had nothing to do with going to New Jersey. Correct. Right. right. So, and I think I, I will say for sure. You know, the kill house. I think either one of those are very plausible. But I would, I would definitely say he was incinerated. I back to your point a few minutes ago. There's just logistically no reason to transport a body across state lines that the most wanted missing person in the, in, in the hear, country you hear all these like these secondhand anecdotes of tony provenzano telling people that he he wanted a trophy i want him i, I want to you know yes. this is this is my head on the man uh head on the mantle and i'm like again he he very well could have said that to people <laughs> sure and he very well could have had that approach but i'm telling you Joe's really no and way. Jack Toco and Tony Giacalone, who were the guys that were in charge of this thing, uh, were smarter than that. <laughs> you know, assaging Tony Pro's ego was nowhere near their radar or in their on their list of priorities when it came to you know tying up all the loose ends to the Hoffa uh, case. And I also think that the uh, I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I've spoken to this on here. I just think Tony Provenzano's role in this whole thing is the most overrated aspect of yeah. the entire mystery. I'm starting to believe that. He's too. just he was simply window dressing. He was he he was theater. He was he was a reason to get Jimmy Hoffa out into the open. He, yeah. He played no role in I don't believe in in the true planning of it. I don't think he really played that much role uh, in the carrying out of it or in the cleanup of it. I think he was there for his people were there for support. And, so, and they're on site to make it seem to tone or to make it seem to Jimmy Hoffa. Is I could see Sal Pergulio being in the car to make Hoffa think, okay, yeah, Tony Sa- Pro's at the Sally meeting. Bugs is here, so yeah. Tony Pro's here. Yeah, he's going to be at the yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's sort of smart, right? Otherwise, he'd be he might have his atten- antenna up, right? So, um, but yeah, it just doesn't make sense to me to transport the body, and and it seems like Dan doesn't really have like when he said, okay, why why do you think? I mean, why wasn't he incinerated? He doesn't really even answer to that other than, well, my sources say that he wasn't. My sources say he was buried. And another issue I take with Dan's theory, and I have such respect for Dan. And he's been on our show twice, yeah. so we love Dan. I love Dan. And I talk, I'm transparent about this with him. I, I just think he's got way too many people involved in this, and a lot of those people that he has involved in this don't have buttons. Yes, correct. So I'm just like, well, if this is the most high-priority mob murder maybe ever like i don't think you're going to be involving a lot of guys that didn't take an oath in any aspects of it no and i I agree and let me just for the record so 
if, if people are confused, they're saying, well, wait a minute, you're talking about some guys in Detroit maybe are involved that don't have buttons. But remember, we've talked about this on some episodes lately. Detroit is different than New York. <laughs> Right? And, we, and, and we know for sure Lenny Schultz was supposed to be at that meeting. Right, right, we don't right. know that Carl – the only thing we know about Carl Licata right. is that his house was five minutes away. It was a house that Jackaloni and, and uh, Hoffa had met at before and that Licata ends up dead at that house six years later. Yeah. But there's never been any uh, implication that Licata was supposed to be at the meeting or no. helped arrange the meeting. No. This, Lenny Schultz was – whether or not his house is involved in this or not, yeah. it's, un, it's indisputable that Lenny Schultz was at the center of of creating this ruse yeah. uh, to, to broker this fake meeting to get Hoffa out in the open to be killed. And his name is prominent in the Hoffa's memo. And um, so it, it's apples and oranges. Like in Detroit, an, an, uh, a guy who's not Italian could conceivably have a high priority mission. No, Brother Moscato's name comes up in the Hoffax memo. And Tony Provenzano's name comes up in the Hoffax memo. They're both made guys. And the and the, the, the crime man. And the other the brothers too, right? The And uh, this, the Andretta brothers. Right. Um and Bergulio brothers. But um Paul Coppola, who was supposedly the guy based on this theory who buried the body, you know, he was Brother Moscato's partner, uh, he was a, you know, a gambler, um, was not a, uh, uh, he might have booked some bets, but he, he wasn't a, a mobster. Um, and you're, according to this theory, you're trusting him with the final piece of the puzzle. And if they did, they would have killed him. Right. They, they would have killed him, right? He would have fell yeah. right into the whole, same and hole. Then, and then he told his sons that were both not made guys. I'm sorry, I just don't, right. <laughs> I think it's thin. So... I think it's done. You want to wrap up with talk about the Saginaw thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I'll just close with. I really haven't been in terms of the Hoffa case and my uh, chronicling of it. You know, when I got to that house and, and saw that big patch of concrete, I got my juices flowing, man. You're talking about Lenny, the to Lenny, Lenny Schultz house. Yeah, because uh, I, I think there's something underneath the ground there. And I have no idea if it's if it's tied to Hoffa or not, but I sense it could be, and I sense that even if it's not, it's something that will tie into my research. Uh, and I think it has something. There's there's something there's, there's something nefarious being hidden. Can you run any records about like the owner having permission? I mean, maybe they just didn't care and did it, but you know, some sometimes you're by inter- you're technically supposed to get permission yeah. from the city. So by interviewing some of his uh, former neighbors. They all said that he was able to get permits from the city that they were not able to get. Sure, I bet because of who he is. Yeah, sure. yeah, it makes and sense. that one of the things they said that he did was uh, he had a he built his garage facing the street, and I guess all the other houses on on the block had to have their garage facing a different part of the property. Yeah, and then I heard from people uh, that were his neighbors too about all these all this concrete pouring. There'd be all this concrete coming into his backyard. So when I got there and the owner's like, oh, yeah, by the way, there's this patch of of, of just paved over concrete in the middle of our grassy knoll backyard. Yeah, I mean, it's, to me, it's inconceivable that Hoffa is back there. But but you're, to your point, a, a murder weapon, something like something. What if it's just, it could be just a leech murder weapon. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. right. Yeah, I, I think Schultz is too smart to have a body back right. there. And, then, and the last thing I'll say about this, and then we're going to close out with the uh, how Tony Jack actually went to prison, 
in, in the years after Hoffa. It had nothing to do with Hoffa, but he went to prison. It was connected to his nephew. His nephew just recently passed away in the last couple of weeks, and we're going to touch on that for about five minutes. But uh, before I want to jump off this, I just want to say that uh, I think that the Lenny Schultz uh, role in this has always been overlooked or underestimated. And I think because he didn't have the cachet, uh, at least in terms of headlines, like Tony Pro or Tony uh, Jack, he got lost in the shuffle. But there's no question in my mind whether or not they killed him at Lenny's house or not that Lenny knew more about that murder and disappearance and burial than probably any other guy that didn't have a button. Yeah. Frank Sheeran doesn't even mention him, right, right. in his book. Yeah. Um, so let's move on real quick and uh, say goodbye to uh, William Billy Lee Liacano, um, who has not actually been in, uh, in the underworld or operating in the underworld for about four decades. But uh, in his 30s, in his 20s and 30s, um, he was a he was a up and coming young buck uh, in the Detroit crime family, uh, running their operations in Saginaw, Michigan, which is about hour and a half uh, north of Detroit. And uh, there's a connection to Hoffa uh, in the fact that uh, Billy Liacano's grandfather was. Giacomo Big Jack Provenzano, first cousin to Tony Provenzano, um, was a, I don't know if he was an official capo, but was a crew boss um, of Detroit mob operations in Saginaw from the end of Prohibition all the way into the early 70s. Um, when Big Jack Provenzano died, he was like a produce king of, of Saginaw and also ran the rackets. Uh, he turned over the crew to his grandson, who at the time I think was about 30, 31 years old, and uh, how he is Tony Giacalone's nephew, I know this is confusing. Yeah, we're going to quiz the audience yeah. after this. So Jack Provenzano, or so Tony Giacalone <laughs> married Jack Provenzano's daughter, uh, who is the sister of Billy Liacano's mother. <laughs> so Billy Liacano's aunt was married to Tony Giacalone. Yeah. And Tony Giacalone was married into the Provenzano family. Right. So uh, Tony Pro and Tony Giacalone knew each other uh, for quite a while before this Jimmy Hoffa um, situation arose uh, to the fact that uh, Tony Pro was at Tony Jack's wedding in 1952 and uh, considered Tony Jack's daughter a niece, per se. Yes. Um, so Billy Liacano uh, passed away in Florida, uh, I believe it was December 6th, so about four, uh, two weeks ago. Um, had been retired from the rackets, uh, like I said, 40 years after his, his bus that he took with his uncle. Um, well, they, they were extorting someone? and Yeah, so it was, a rac- it was a whole racketeering bust of uh, racketeering activities out in Saginaw. Uh, gambling, loan sharking, numbers running, drug dealing. Etc. Lee Econo had a crew. They were kind of spread out amongst what was what is known or was known as the Tri City area, 
uh, Flint, Saginaw, and Bay City. Um, Some of those guys weren't even Italian, right? Some of the guys in right. the crew. Yeah. Well, the guys that Leocano's closest lieutenants or highest ranking lieutenants were not uh, right. Italian. One, the Labrache brothers, I think that's how you pronounce it, Brent and, and Bruce Labrache or Labrache. Uh, I believe they were French um, and, uh, or Dutch. Uh, they controlled Bay City for, um, for Leocano and the Saginaw group. And then he had a, uh, a pretty menacing enforcer by the name of uh, Norman Pete the Arm Crawford, who was his muscle. And uh, Pete Crawford was one of the more, most feared criminals to ever walk the street of Saginaw. Uh, six, four, six, five, incredibly uh, physically imposing, uh, tied to a number of gangland hits in that area late 60s. Early was he African-American dude or white dude? I don't know. Yeah. Um, I've never seen a picture of the guy. But uh, they were tied to a hit. Uh, the only hit that Leocano's crew was ever really linked to, even though Leocano was never specifically linked to the hit, uh, was a numbers runner um, named David De La Rosa, who was killed in 1976. And uh, the belief was that uh, Pete Crawford murdered him on, on uh, orders of the Jackaloni brothers. So Leocano is running his crew uh, from about the age of, so let's say, 1970, 1980. So from when he's about 30 to 40, I think. And, uh, or maybe 35 to 45. And uh, he has a headquarters, just like all these mom guys do, a place where he's at every day where he handles his business. Um, it was called the Pasta House. Um, and the Pasta House was owned by a, crew associate of his named Tony Dambro, who was Italian. And Dambro ended up selling him the business uh, and building renovations on the original restaurant and then selling him the liquor license. And there were um, problems with the sale. And those problems ended up in a civil lawsuit filed uh, against Billy Leocano by Tony Dambro. Um, and Billy Leocano uh, went on a a uh, a campaign of intimidation. And yeah, he, you should read Scott's re- reporting because the, it's quite colorful. The, the he would run because they would run. I mean, they were running in the same circles. This was a guy that used yeah. to be a part of his crew, right? And they would run into each other at restaurants or at funerals and weddings and. It would uh, turn into Leocano threatening this guy's life or uh, trying to school him on the way that wise guys do business, wise guys don't file lawsuits. Yeah, they don't sewage. Yeah. <laughs> uh, like that famous quote from uh, Sal Profacci yeah, yeah. From, the, from the Philly tapes in the 90s, yeah. goodfellas don't sue goodfellas. Yeah, they kill. Goodfellas kill, kill goodfellas. Right. Um, and uh, – Eventually led to Tony Jackaloni uh, driving up to Saginaw to it was basically said to his nephew, "Well, if you can't handle this, I'm gonna handle it," because uh, he had been badgering his nephew to get the lawsuit dropped. Um, and Tony Jackaloni just showed up at this guy's apartment, yeah, and knocked on the door, <laughs> yeah, uh, and invited himself in, and uh, sat down at, at his dinner table and and told him not only do you have to drop the lawsuit 
you have to pay me $100,000 or we're going to kill you (laughs) for for giving us the headache. (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And that ended up being uh, turned into a separate case against Giacalone. Uh, The Leocano crew went down in a a case, I believe, in 78. Everyone pled out. Leocano did like a year or two in prison and then left town, went down to Florida started a, a produce and meat company and, and has been living on the straight and narrow, was living on the straight and narrow uh, from 1980. Did he just not want the headache anymore, or, is, or did he get, like, shelved? I don't, or? I don't know. I don't know. Because Denbro went to the FBI, right? That's how the yes. that's how it all yes. unraveled. Because he was, he was wired up. He was, he was okay. wired up on them. Um, but, Jack, but the Jacqueline case was a separate indictment. Okay. Um, and Jacqueline, it was a superseding indictment from Jacqueline's tax case, which he took in 76, I believe. So the FBI was going to put Tony Giacalone in prison, uh, whether or not it was for the Hoffa murder or not. He got nailed on the tax evasion, and then they rolled in the extortion count. Uh, he ended up doing seven years, uh, reported to prison uh, down in Atlanta, uh, I believe January 1st, 1979, and uh, was released uh, first week of January 1986. Actually, I have a, a, one of my favorite pictures from my collection is a photo from his going away party. <laughs> Christmas 78 with his, with his him and his whole crew standing. I don't know where they were, but it's like him and his sons and Ronnie Morelli and uh, Bobby LaPuma. And uh, it's pretty, it's a pretty cool photo. So yeah, Billy Lee O'Connell passed away two weeks ago. Um, you know, I guess his legacy really is the fact that uh, <laughs> he was responsible for, for putting Tony Giacalone in prison, if not for the Hoffa case um, for something that I, I guess, uh, Satisfied the government nonetheless that they they got him off the street for a uh, better half of a decade, and Lee Connell passed away. Um, but you know, to, I guess to his credit, you know, he 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 turned over a new leaf, and uh, didn't get in any trouble uh, from let's say forty five to eighty five, and uh, lived a, a a very successful, peaceful life uh, down in uh, Florida. Um, I believe in the Tampa area. And now Saginaw, they have their own problems. Yeah, with and I, underworld and I, stuff. It ain't Italians yeah. anymore. And I, I'm, I'm pretty confident in saying, uh, unless I've, I have some blind spots in my research, that when uh, Leocano left Saginaw, they didn't replace him. That's what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah I don't, I don't. So Flint, the, it was a changing, uh, yeah, <laughs> changing neighborhood. That's so, saying. so Flint, which is part of that Tri City uh, region, was always controlled by the Ruggerello brothers. And the Ruggerello brothers were active, uh, you know, into the 2010s. Um, well, at least some of the Ruggerello brothers. There was four brothers. One uh, died in the 80s, and the other three lived into the 2000s. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure if, if Tony Ruggerello or Toto Ruggerello uh, had activity going on in Saginaw or Bay City. I know that... Uh, they they definitely had some some underworld interests in Flint, yeah. So you know if, if you're just kind of uh, playing armchair mob boss, um, you you could possibly see at least uh, right off the bat in 1980, uh, Jack Toko telling the Ruggerellos, who he was very close with, by the way, um, they were like brothers to him, uh, telling the Ruggerellos that you know you can take over what's left, yeah, what's yeah. left in Saginaw. Yeah, that stuff. would make sense. And and in the 80s, there there'd still be room for yeah. uh, Italian guys to. There's not a big Italian population in Saginaw right now. No, no. In Flint, no. though, you, there's still Italians in Flint. Are there really? Yeah. 
In fact, the 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 Jacquelines had another nephew up in Flint, right? Who died in the last couple of years? Right. Whose last name was Jack Joey Jack? Was Joey Jacqueline? They call him Joe White. Yeah. Um. And uh, yeah, he was. I know handling some Flint stuff for them. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, that's uh, I mean, we give me a Hoffa update, give you some some breaking Hoffa news in relation to Detroit, give you uh, an obit on uh, Tony Jacqueline's nephew who who uh, passed away a couple weeks ago, but was uh, responsible for, uh, I guess, indirectly responsible for, for putting Tony Jacqueline behind bars and testify against him. But um, it was his problem that Tony Jacqueline had to come down or come up, I guess, and fix. But, uh, you know, just closing with that, uh, I guess my, my final remarks are whenever I hear those kind of stories, and I remember hearing about it when we did the, uh, the interview with uh, uh, Sanderson, uh, Jim Sanderson, talking about it. His brother Freddie Sanderson and and uh, Gene Manson they were killed uh, in in a triple murder in 1985 uh, ordered by the Jackalones, and it, it I remember hearing that uh, you know Manson had been summoned to Billy Jackalone's house you know in the week or two before he was murdered, and like to me this is like there's being summoned to a mob boss's house for a meeting and then there's like you're you're sitting down watching Price is Right. <laughs> and you get a, a doorbell ring. Yeah. You open the door, and one of the scariest individuals you know you've ever seen in your life is, is standing right in front of you, uh, telling you that he's going to kill you unless you give him a hundred thousand dollars. Well, it also shows you. It also shows you the the different styles of like like someone like Jack Toko. That's inconceivable that he would do that. I mean, just never. But Tony Jack was a street guy. Till the very till the very end, right? And get his hands dirty, handle his business himself, right? And this was again. You're, you just mentioned it. This was he was he'd been street boss for twenty years <laughs> right, at that point. Right, he didn't have to he do that. He was in his late fifties, early sixties. <laughs> right. Like right. he could have sent somebody. Uh, yeah, easily. <laughs> right. And then there's another little uh, tidbit in there that part of the conversation that was being had in Sicilian. Oh, that's right. So yeah, he was like, oh yeah, yeah, throwing shade at him in multiple yeah, he was multiple languages. Business. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it reminds you of the the with the Tony Soprano when he when he becomes like the street boss, right? Like he, he sort of he starts getting depressed because he he's not doing the street things that he used to do. Remember? What about and, when Johnny said <laughs> they had the, the, the meeting? Uh, oh yeah, yeah, clandestine yeah. meeting. He's yeah. like, I'm the boss now. Yeah, it's uncivilized. It's, un- it's, un- it's un- uncommon. Undignified, undignified or whatever he says. <laughs> right, right. All right. Well, thanks everyone for tuning in. Uh, like us, subscribe, spread the word, and we'll bring you. Fresh content next week. Jimmy Bucciolato. Scott Bernstein. We're out.